0: Now, it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, the amazing Lorene Carey. She is a wonderful writer, a great author, a playwright. She is a social activist and teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we meet Lorene to discuss her latest book, the memoir, Lady Sitting. And it provides a wealth of topics and important insights of Lorene's life and how we find relevance in it. Let's now meet Lorene. Loreen Carey, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm just delighted.
0: I am as well, because you are such an incredibly wonderful writer, and so I guess it's no surprise or it's wonderful that you also teach creative writing at the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, because the story is just so enveloping. It's uh, so... Well, right now we're talking about your latest book that's just come out in paperback, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century. The title itself is so captivating, like wanting to know about the centenarian, and then underscoring this is the, the method, the way that you write, the language. It just is so captivating that I, my feeling is we find ourselves right there along with you, um, maybe as your shadow. Yeah, I mm, think as a I shadow. So. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I, I hope so. You know, the, the only the reason to do a memoir instead of something else is just that. What you want to do is you want to bring people in. And I, I remember I wrote one other memoir about going to boarding school in New England, in the sort of in the eight, uh, early days of integration, racial integration and co-education. And I heard someone talking on our NPR station here in Philadelphia, uh, and that person said that that what you are doing in a memoir is you are trying to get people to come over to your side. And to look, you're you're showing them through your little broken piece of glass. That's like your glasses, and you say, "This this is how it looks to me. What we, we what do you think? This is this is how it felt. This is what it smelled like. Yeah. This is why I worried. What it, what do you think about that? And that's what a memoir should do. It should take, It should not lecture to you. It should not make you feel pity for the person writing. It should not be that the person cut the vein and bled all over the page. It's not confession. Um, It says, "Come, come with me into this part of life. And I mean, the part of life we're talking about is the end of life with an older loved one. You know, 50 something, 54, 55 million Americans are taking care of someone who is disabled or elderly. Um, You know, add COVID to that, and it's just crazy. But every year, that's what we
0: do. And to varying degrees of how we approach this, and I so appreciate in lady sitting, the kind of love, the respect, your desire to have your nana come and live in your home, because the idea of her having to go anywhere else for care just seemed like it was—it just was not going to happen. It wasn't possible. Well, I mean, let's
1: let's, let's just be straight up here. Nana did not have a plan B. <laughs> there was no plan b she would not hear about a plan b so my my uh, husband in one of his naughty moods said she didn't have a plan b because she had a plan l uh, <laughs> which was the person named for her um but she also was a difficult person she was she was smart and she could be funny and she had been j- Wildly generous and indulgent, in fact, to to me and to my sister when we were kids. Um, but she could be really difficult. Uh, she was not someone with whom you had easy intimacy. And, and she was not like, say, my Aunt Emily, who had been in a nursing home after her stroke. Um, Aunt Emily could figure out how to live with people. She made friends. She... She used to sit in her wheelchair by the nurse's station. She loved the gossip. She uh, she made a community, even though she couldn't um, speak well, even though she was paralyzed on one side. uh, Nana could not. So it makes a big difference in terms of how you know that person will go into some sort of communal life.
0: And that made the decision so clear for you that she need, needed to be with you. You were able to take her into your home, and it was going to give her the best possible end-of-life experience.
1: That, that's certainly what we hoped. I, I'll, I'll also tell you, frankly, that we took her in when she was put on to hospice, which usually means that the person has six weeks. Uh, on the outside, maybe six months to live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we had talked, I mean, my sister at the time had a one-year-old and a three-year-old and lived two hours away. And um, my grandmother wanted to be close to her house, close to her business and all that. Um, and we happened, because my husband is a, an Episcopal clergy, we happened to be in a rectory, which had lots of room. And so, so we were able to take her in my my younger daughter was just i think in middle school going to high school so so we had the family set up to be able to do it not everybody does
0: At, which is true uh, yes. and we live these distances your sister was two hours away when my mother was in her later last days we're two thousand miles apart you know, even as it was approaching that, it, when we're that uh-huh. kind of distance, it's so so difficult. So it is a gift when we ha- when all these things line up, where we are closer in proximity, where we have the space, and and we know that that is really the best thing for the person, as it was for here, Nana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and the,
1: and the money, it is so hard. People are struggling. So hard to keep a roof over their heads and food in their mouths. so I don't, I don't want to take any of that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had the church next door to us, which means that we had a re- a set of regular activities. Um, I talk in the book about hearing during the summer by the way, the six weeks the six months ended up being more than a year and a half <laughs> because <laughs> Nana got better. she used to sit on the bed and say, "Oh honey. You're taking such good care of me. I can't die. <laughs> no, no, everybody can die. <laughs> but, but she felt immortal. I mean, Nana really, really did feel quite immortal. We went with a wheelchair at night, for instance, with the church next door. We heard there was a lyric opera, local lyric opera company that practiced, and we listened to them. The wonderful um, organist, Roland where came and practiced. And I have in the book this one time when we actually came in, and she was able to take off all of the gizmos that we figured out to help her communicate. She had earphones and a microphone that we spoke into because her hearing had gone. She had um, very strong eyeglasses from the low vision clinic. She had oxygen to the um, but just in the wheelchair, the oxygen was toward the end. She didn't need that at first. She took off the earphones. She took off the glasses and closed her eyes. And the organ was so light. You know how it vibrates yes. through you. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember she said, oh, honey, I feel like
0: myself again. <sighs> yeah. Oh. something. What an incredible... Um, Opportunity gift that she, that yeah. she was able to have in her latter days. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and not all of it was like that.
0: No. Um,
1: she also did, you know, sit in that same place and bang on the arms of the wheelchair. You know, shouting, <laughs> "Why am I still alive?" <laughs> you know, she couldn't hear. She couldn't see. She.
0: Yeah.
1: I was working. She felt like she was a burden. She had been a trustee for this small uh, real estate business for years, started by an African-American power couple here in Philadelphia. Um, Apartments, low-rent apartments, which when she cleared the mortgages in the 50s, began to generate a small amount of money. She took 6 to 10% of it as the trustee, salary fee. And then she gave away from like 1950 something to the early 2000s. She gave away 150 very small scholarships to African-American students to go to college. That's what that business was for. Um, Toward the end, because she kept the rents low, because she was so afraid of loans, No loans, no loans. She wouldn't take out a loan for anything. So apartments went down and down, and she would sell a building, use that money to fix up the others. And in that way, the parcel shrank um, so that at the end of her life, she but she was still doing it. You know, there's a man who would do the fixing for her. He'd bring her the rent. Uh, she'd sit in the kitchen and ask me to count it with her. I felt like we were like she's a wheelchair gangster, you know, with this money counting it. I Went to the bank with, and people would look at me with all this money. God, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but you know, at at the end, she she just sort of wanted to to keep all of that the same. It was. It was, um, it, it, and, and it couldn't be. Yes. So she had to sell the buildings, and it felt like a, taking a terrible hit. She couldn't drive her car, and she was angry about that. Like she was, she was angry to have to have people come and, and help her and take care of her. She didn't like them. Finally, thank God, she liked two people.
0: Bless their hearts. <laughs> and you were uh, one of the prime people that she loved unconditionally?
1: Oh, I don't know if it was unconditional. She did She did love me very much. Um, she also toured, you know, wanted the, this book came from two bits that I couldn't stop remembering. One was all the little snacks. I would take her sweets at night and put them on a, on a plate with Saran wrap. But the other one came from this moment when she, uh, she woke this one day and it was, she was getting close to death. I don't know what voices she was hearing, what presences she was. um, However you want it, whatever your belief system is, whether she was feeling them, knowing them, intuiting them, imagining them, Whatever your belief system was, is. She felt she would look over her shoulder when we got to the landing to turn on the chair rail. She would look out the window. She said, "Get that window!" Like she was getting very afraid,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and it felt like they were getting closer. And she, this one particular day, um, without her oxygen, without her eyeglasses, without her earphones. When I came up to her, she decided to grab my hand and wrestle them, and and like she, as if she were going to, you know, keep me from touching her. Mm. And um, I didn't wrench away because I didn't want to hurt her. But I had my, you know, our daughter run down, go get daddy because his voice is a very kind of a wonderful baritone voice. His was the voice she could hear even without her earphones. And he talked her down and got her to let go. Um, I got her a cup of coffee and said, she's got to get something. Her blood sugar is low. She has me. And when I brought her the coffee, done exactly the way she liked it. She said to me, Oh honey, you drink it first. You've had a cold. That may help your cold." She was this (laughs) cloying, game playing, not herself. And I was so furious that I was unable to be a caretaker at that point. I remember just, I just slammed it down, and I said, you know what, I don't play mind games, and I don't take them. I'm not going to take it from you. It was the only time i have ever spoken like that mm. to my grandmother. I said, I'm not taking If you don't want it, throw it in the potty, which was right next to it. But, but I'm not. And then it was as if. She had tested me. She didn't believe the me who was kind to her at that point, but she did believe me when she felt like I was pushed to the wall. And she said to me, oh, honey, the 6 I'm in, I couldn't trust the Lord Jesus Christ right now. <laughs> it <was> lifelong Episcopalian. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, Nana felt like, she couldn't trust anybody. Mm. Period. There is And it was
0: sad. It, yes. And there are, I, I feel in sharing these kinds of stories, being so personal, saying this is what happened, there aside from being drawn in and being such a part of it, we also are able to learn that how we might want to approach life. I know I was doing that alongside my mother, you know, Uh, being there, but also an observer. And how do I want to approach my, you know, the next days and the next years because of, you know, similar to your Nana, there was that attachment to things. I think it's the generation that, you know, early... 20th century, where they had so little, you know. Just once they were able to acquire something, just they they wanted to hold on to it, and it was hard to to let go. You know, it, it possessed them, right? <laughs> claw marks, <laughs> claw-, claw marks,
1: <laughs> Yes, yes, and it didn't. It did not matter to her. I mean, she she did feel genuinely sorry that keeping her house uh, worked all the death while she was living in our house. Mm. She was, I mean, she, but, but it was like too bad. That's my house. As she is say, I said, man, I can't, you know, I run over there at lunchtime. We try to t- take care of it. Our older daughter who had graduated college and was working, uh, actually working at Penn, moved into the house. Because she said, well, at least if I move and I can keep it. So she was a single young person who drove over to the bridge to live in this suburban house, in a white neighborhood, by the way, and in the white neighborhood that white people had moved to when when redlining had happened, to move away from us. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's where she was. <laughs> um, so it wasn't, she didn't feel like like she was particularly welcome. It was way too much house for her and the dog. Um and when her pals, you know, at work said, let's go out for a beer, she said, Oh, I can't why do, do you guys want to come over to my No, nobody wants to drive over to the suburbs <laughs> in New Jersey for a beer. Sorry. So, no, you know, so she did we did all that. Nana Nana would not she would not let go. What she said to us was, Well honey, when you and if you and Bob decide to put me out, where would I go? <laughs> she laugh. <laughs>, laughs.
0: Meanwhile, she's been put on hospice. Yes, she recovered, but you know that yeah. we know where we're at. You're a, by that point maybe 101 already, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yes, 101 already. Yeah.
1: And I and I must say, a part of me was 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 surprised and kind of hurt by that. Yeah, you know. What's the evidence? What do you mean put you out? Um, But at the end of the day, I, I decided I had to use the hospice services respite care, which gives you five days where they take the person, your loved one, into their care for five days to give you five days of respite. And I knew to her, it would likely signify abandonment um but i was but she was not sleeping my organization had a big 10th anniversary thing which was you know three events over a whole weekend and you know 5000 people coming and making a, a mayor t- new composer i couldn't sleep i was in her room with her at night while she was awake um and I was, I was just, I, I lost it. I was, I was not driving on the road safe. I was really spent. Um, and I made that decision. I knew that that's how she would take it. And I, and I made the decision anyway. It's, it's a lot like looking at yourself and saying, what would I do and what wouldn't I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did it.
0: And isn't that what we really tell those who are in caretaking roles? You need to take care of yourself because if you are wiped out, if you're not going to be able to do it, who's going to take care of this person? So self-care, so critically important.
1: Yeah, I guess that's another thing that generation didn't believe in. And my generation, I hear it from our kids. I, I kind of believe it. A little bit <laughs> you don't always do it as well as one should. Um, but it was, in fact, in yoga, years and years after she had died, that I was able to begin to discover and speaking of letting go and let go of some of the grief and and a lot of the anger that I had just you know put into a little box and locked up inside me. And locked up means it was locked up at a cellular level, locked up in muscles that were always painfully hurt, locked up in a neck that I couldn't turn, since you have to throw your whole body sideways to park the car. (laughs)
0: That's
1: (laughs) what we do with it.
0: Now, writing had all along been a, a, a kind of therapy, a way that you could release a lot, but it took you... It, as you said, years of having to deal with this before you actually wrote Lady Sitting and, and were able to kind of really get to a place of peace?
1: I think so. I, a lot of things had to happen, including research into the, the little thumbnails of stories that she either told it didn't tell or only referenced slightly or made into, you know, almost iconic stories that I later realized, whoa, this this can't be all true, or this this is only a little bit of this or so you know, so looking up, finding out about her father, whom she idolized, but never told me much about and and learning about him and his brother who were both secretaries for congressman uh, George White who was the black african american congressman from north carolina her father and his brother were born right right after the war they came of age right when the federal government forced the southern states to write slavery out of their state constitutions. They grew up with this ferocious African-American rush toward enfranchisement, black men, not women, of course, Mm -hmm. because the women weren't given the vote two years later. The men were going, going after the vote, going after land, going after their own ownership in a way that so upended the South, the whole you know, the Jim Crow structures came in specifically to figure out how to re-enslave how to how to get them back into a work-for-nothing situation. Her father, whose father had been a free-colored man and had amassed 500 acres of land. You know, her father was this wealthy landowner and worked as a secretary and with at this man was part of writing the first anti-lynching bill. Can you imagine that we're still writing anti-lynching bills, for God's sake? Yes. And he did it in 1900. In 1902, he had to leave because all of the people who were voting for him had been cut out by the grandfather clauses, by the poll tax, by the intimidation, by the bullying. Uh, And by the straight-up violence, straight-up violence and straight-up lynching that was happening, so that there was nobody left to vote for him. There had been some white Republicans in the fusion, kind of a a fusion politics happening. But he left in 1902, and her father, along with a, a number of other people from North Carolina, came to Philadelphia because all of the work they were doing had been stopped, yes, they could themselves vote because they could claim a white grandfather or could pay the poll tax, but they could not build a citizens' movement and and came north to do it. I didn't know all of that um, and I had to, to look it up and find it out. there's a uh, some, wonderful, uh, website, some wonderful website, wonderful website called um, uh, scuffle, uh, scuffle along, scuffle along where this, uh, woman named Lisa Henderson, Lisa Y. Henderson, just looks up all of this stuff and had all these wonderful newspapers. And then never told me these things. Um, all I knew was the sense of shame that her father had once owned land. And then now they were, now they didn't have it anymore but
0: I never understood why. And such critical history that she was perhaps aware and didn't want to recognize that, but many of us don't know that. And, (laughs) you know, in, in your researching it and sharing parts of this in the story really makes us that much more aware and informed and, we could go further into that, but time is getting short, and I wanted to be sure that mm-hmm. this is really in recognition of your great-grandfather, that you are uh, very much involved with young people and voting.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The the um, initiative is called Hashtag Vote That John, J-A-W-N. John is a Philadelphia term coming all the way to you from Philly. <laughs> Um, which is a substantive, it's just a street slang for um, uh, what's going call it? So you know, h- h- hand me that John over there. Well, it's it's sort of it's a noun. It's any noun. So the the premise of this, and we have a rap theme song if you want to look it up, is if you would promote that John, then vote that John. Whatever it is that you would promote that you that matters to you, um, vote it figure out how it connects to voting because everything does. So this, we did it in 2018. Um, we had lots of young people at the NPR station in Philadelphia, I must say, for a great event to talk about strategies to get 18-year-olds that seem between high school and college. So we have kids in college and also in high school. But how to get them to talk to their cohort? So that it's not somebody older with their finger pointed. It's not a lecture. It is just eighteen-year-olds saying to each other, "This is, this is important. This is cool. This is fun. This is part of adulthood." It's like learning about um, learning about partnering with a loved one. It's learning about driving and making money and having sex and Figuring out your life, like all of this, is about being a grown up and being a citizen, having having the correct power of citizenship. That's why Will Hagen's went from North Carolina to Philadelphia because they took it away from him and he could no longer be an adult. So it does it absolutely feels to me like continuing that legacy. Um, and the young people they have a great Instagram. They have TikTok. They're doing. They're doing um, uh, blogs. We have a wonderful website so that John with with really useful information. Please follow. Please share. It's not just for. It is about registering Philly Philly youth, but everything on it is applicable to young people everywhere.
0: And we know how critically important that is. I think we're seeing around us how the young people are uh, really very much about making themselves heard, being activists. So it, it's all coming together uh, very strongly, Amen. and this is a very important time. Amen. 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 And so <laughs> before we have to uh, is, is say our goodbyes, we should mention your website because there t- is a wealth of information, including all the other books that you've written. Of course, uh, Lady Sitting is so great, uh, available in audio now, too, which uh, during this time we kind of resort to, but new and paperback just now. So, website Lorene is? It's Lorene Carry L O R E N E
1: C A R Y dot com. And just remember, Carrie has no E, <laughs> but it's Lorene um dot com. And you're right, there's lots there. It connects to blogs. I do fresh blogs. Mm, not as often as I should. Um, I did a play in the wintertime. You can see a little piece of uh, piece of that. Is um, lots of stuff there. Please do visit.
0: Let's visit and thank you so greatly for taking this time with us this morning. It's just been such a, a great wealth of information and connection and just uh, just important things that we need to be thinking about and acting upon. So thank you, Laureen Carey.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of inspirational women with Lorene Carey and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Colonel Michael Lewis, U.S. Army, retired. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then look for each of the show names. I now wish you and your family a day of realizing we have so much to learn and to begin that learning. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.